This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. My next guest joining me here in the studio is Ginny Rometty. She's the former chairman and CEO of IBM, co-chair at 110, and author of the really really valuable new book, Good Power. Jenny, I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, my pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we're doing this in person. Me too. That alone feels novel. Yep. But I want to share a little bit about your background for people who may not be aware of all of it. So Ginny is the penultimate. She's just the prime example of a leader, innovator, convener, who really believes that how we work and lead is as important as what we achieve. As the ninth chairman, president, and CEO of IBM, Ginny transformed that 100-year-old company, building a $25 billion hybrid cloud business, amongst other things, and establishing IBM's leadership in AI and quantum computing. She drove record results in diversity and inclusion and supported the explosive growth of an innovative high school program, P-TECH, to prepare the workforce of the future in more than 28 countries. Today, she's a champion of skills-first learning, hiring, and advancement. It's a movement to connect more people without college degrees with good jobs. And in 2020, she co-founded 110, this amazing coalition of companies and educators that's committed to upskilling, hiring, and promoting 1 million Black Americans by 2030 into jobs and careers that are truly family-sustaining. She's also the author of this new book, Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and World. And I found it to be a really moving combination of her own life experiences, invaluable leadership lessons, and big ideas for us all, which we're going to talk about today. So, Ginny, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that very gracious introduction. Oh, well-deserved. Mm. So, in the beginning of your book, you, t- you share a lot about your own background. But one of the things that really struck me was how it connected to self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and independence. Can you share with our listeners what those dots are that connected? Why are those traits so essential? One, to understanding who you are and also what we need to be successful in this life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think what I discovered, because the whole book is written in retrospect. Um, I mentioned to you, I had never planned to write a book when I had retired. And we can come back to how I ended up there. And when you look back at your life sometimes, and mine's not over by any stretch, but <laughs> as I look back, you start to see a kind of a silver thread. And it's clear, I was raised by very strong women. And I start the book on a very, um, what some people would say, a very negative point, because I talk about the day my dad uh, left our family, walked out, left my mom, four of us, uh, said he did not care what happened to us. I happened to have overheard the whole conversation. And uh, my mom was only 32 years old at the time and four kids, never a day of education outside of high school and had never worked. And now suddenly found ourselves on financial aid, on food stamps, almost without a home. And I start on that not because my mom's a victim. And so you ask, why do you learn this independence? I start there because actually it's to celebrate my mom because what she did for us, I don't think she still to this day even understands because what it taught us all, A, was fierce independence because my mom was determined she was not going to be a victim out of this. Uh, she never said anything, but she went and got a few bits of education so she could get a job, then a little bit more and a better job, and a little bit, you know, she desperately wanted us off of food stamps and, you know, to get some dignity. Mm-hmm. And so we watched, and I think internally what we interpreted was 
I am never going to be dependent on someone. So this fierce independence of no matter what, I will always take care of myself. If I marry, it'll be for all the right reasons. It will never <laughs> be because I, oh my, I need this for some reason. And I've now been married 43 years, right? And so the on one hand, that independence. And then the other thing my mom, and this is to me was most valuable to all of us. What we watched was she was like, never said it, but the learning was only you define who you are and that don't ever let someone else define who you will be. And honestly, I, I feel like I've learned that that's true as a person, as a company. I would learn this many times in life as a country, that that is very true. And um, and then the other theme in there is that my mom, my mom wasn't dumb. I mean, she was actually quite smart, but she had no access to anything. So this idea that access and aptitude never confuse them. They're two different things. You know, God spread mm-hmm. brains pretty equally around town. And that would be things that would stay with me forever. And, and I don't even talk about my grandma and my great-grandma, well, I was, who all had tragedies. I was going to ask about them because um, my mother and grandmother had said to me early on that you need to think about your career, not just because of what you want to do, because you also have to be self-sufficient. You can't count on a man to take care of you, and you shouldn't want to. And it, But it was that was life experience talking. Your mom saw that from her mother and grandmother, yeah. yes? Yeah, and I think uh, you're right. You, me, there, we are, I don't know why I feel like this is a story that hits the same chord with so many people of someone in their life. And my great-grandma, uh, her fa- she was the last one alive out of Belarus at World War One. She worked in the Wrigley Building, third shift, cleaning bathrooms, never spoke English. Every Christmas we got a piece of, uh, a sticker, what do you call it, a package of Wrigley gum. You know what the irony is? So what, we, what do we see? Nothing but hard work, cleaning mm-hmm. bathrooms. But it was every dime she had went into U.S. savings bonds. And one day when we almost didn't have a car, it would be those savings bonds that would save my mom. And my grandmother was a twice widow by in her 20s. I mean, it was a horrible story. And uh, she ended up having to have her own lamp store making lampshades by, by hand. But all that is not like, I, you know, when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And But what we all took away was... Well, hard work always makes something better. That's what we saw. Like, I and I don't know how many people still believe that. Like, I took away that hard work always makes something a little better and that there is always a way forward. And ironically, I don't know how you felt about your upbringing. After what my father did, I felt, well, this sets a bar for bad mm-hmm. and nothing will ever be this bad again. And And that's such a freeing feeling. Yes. You know, no matter how bad things we get at work, I'm thinking, well, look, if you got your health, you have your family. And also, you saw that you have the capacity to change it. And it sounds like that's what these generations of women taught you. Yes. And I hope many people, and that's actually why the book is written in the power of me, we, Mm -hmm. and us. And I hope what people take from the first part is, when my mom had nothing, she had power. And, And that's, to me, a really liberating message I'm trying to convey to people. Um, but through real stories, right? right? That's how it ended up right. being and a that, memoir and purpose, right? <laughs> right. And that power is not bestowed upon you. It's something within that you can tap into. So, Jenny, this, your childhood and your background not only shaped your character, but it also meant that you didn't have um, various privileges that a lot of other people had. So the fact that you went to Northwestern, you know, there, that was not a given, so tell us, how did you wind up there? Yeah. How were you able to pay for it? Well, I'm very cognizant. I'm at Wharton. Okay, so I, <laughs> I do realize, and, and I'm also, through the book process, I have to tell you, I learned this point about there are people who think I do have a lot of privilege. And I, I think to myself, wow. And it really made me think hard. And I even wrote a bit in the beginning of the book. I say, look, I'm very cognizant. I have more privilege than others. 
but there were others, many others that had more privilege than I. Yes. And so you have to, don't be angry one side or the other. It's like, what do you learn from this? And, you know, for me, Northwestern, part of, as we grew up, I think because my mom had been through so much pain, my brothers and sisters and I said, well, we got to just study and st- we can't cause her more trouble. You know, in, in, just in our brains, somewhere and was you this didn't, thought. It wasn't as if you coached them because you were taking care of all your I younger I was taking siblings. care of them. No, and my mom will even say to this day, because my three siblings are very successful, and my mom will say, what did I ever do? And <laughs> we kind of laugh. It's like you did everything. But she, that feeling that... Um, you study hard. So that would be the first thing when you say, how did I get to Northwestern? And the other point I try to make in the beginning, because so many people starting in their life or they're younger or whoever you are, you said no title. The difference the teachers that um, my neighbors made, all these seemingly small things people do that change your life forever. And, you know, a teacher who said, like, I could never afford Northwestern. And um, I look on a map. I'm like, okay, well, where can I go that's not far away? I've studied hard. Okay, so I could get into University of Illinois for sure probably. Okay, state school. Then I'm like, okay, well, what would be the next best thing that I could not have to get on an airplane for? And it was Northwestern. So, and I said, well, and a teacher said to me, they will admit you because of your academics. Then they will decide your financial period. Because my father wouldn't fill out paperwork, so he made it very difficult. And um, so, therefore, those were the only two places. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'm hoping one comes out. <laughs> and if not, I'll be with my grandma at the lamp store. And and it was because of teachers. And, you know, I was crazy. I had scholarships for, like, the American Daughters of the Revolution. And yeah, it sounded crazy like you stuff. had a scholarship for $50 here, 500 there, anything you could do to That's what I did. cover yeah. your expenses. Yes, because my mom, there was no money. And the same was true for my brothers and sisters. This is such a testimony, one, to... Um, the message that I've heard as a parent often, which is it's not what you tell your children, it's what you show your children. And you lived with this amazing Lord, role model. That is model. so true, right? I, I felt that way as a leader. Be careful. It's not what I say. It's what I actually do. And, exactly. And, and I think that's a lesson I talk about in the book forever. I talk about a trip to Japan after uh, Fukushima and the nuclear impact that happened. And everyone was leaving Japan. Any any uh, gaijin would be leaving. Right. And I end up going because... No one else really wanted to go. And I'm like, well, if we're leaving 20,000 people there, it must be safe. I go, and as I go through the airport, he tries to tell me, don't come in here. Like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, look, I mean, there's no one. I can hear my feet on the floor. And I said, well, no, I, I think it's okay. But the only reason I tell you that is I never said anything. I never wrote about it. I didn't tweet about it. I mean, to you this just day, my Japanese, the country will not forget that when everyone else left, I went. And back to your actions, well, such a... It's very tried and true, right? Always speak louder than your words. Yes, but this is important, especially as, you know, the theme throughout the book is how do we tap into our power and leverage it for good and help other people in the process? And this is, these are just such amazing examples of it. I want to go back for a minute. So you go to Northwestern and you're coming out of what sounds like was a a close family between your siblings and your mom and your grandmother. Yeah. but you didn't have a lot of exposure to things that other people who were going to Northwestern had exposure to. And somehow you managed to join a sorority. Yeah. What did the sorority mean for you, both what were its challenges and what were the gifts that it gave you? Yeah. And that I have to contemporize that thought because nowadays there's a lot of controversy over Greek systems, mm-hmm. right, and whether they're exclusionary, privileged, et cetera. Now, this is back in the late 70s. And at Northwestern, uh, the Greek system 
to have a place to live, 40% of the population lived in the Great system. Yeah, it's Greek essential system. housing it on was many essential campuses. housing is a very, and it's true still in many campuses, mm-hmm. right, that that's essential. And, but the, the lesson I had out of that, again, back to power me, because I didn't really fit in, but to me, it did provide a sense of belonging in a place that I thought, well, other than academically, there wasn't anything else in common between me and most of the people there. And so that first you get that sense of belonging because you're with a group of people. But it's probably the first time I would see peers as role models, right? That would, This will come back many times in the book about this thought of what do your responsibility as a role model. And I would see these other women really studying hard and thinking, hmm, they weren't just studying. They were in economics. They were an engineer. You know, oh, I could do that, right? So I saw that. But it would also be a thing where I would look around and think like, wow, I don't have any of these clothes. I don't have any, I don't have this money. And so now I can laugh. I mean, I can remember I had like, you know, I don't even know if they call them these anymore, topsiders. They're still around, right? So well, if they're listening, they're probably mad at me. But I mean, I think they're still around, right? <laughs> it was so funny when you described it, topsiders, corduroys, and the Izod shirt. Yeah, right? Lacoste. And I had like one of each of those. And like, that was all I, but okay, then I felt like I fit in. I could afford, you know, I would save my money, about one of each, and that was it. And, but that idea of, yes, it provided belonging and be to pure role models is kind of what I really, and, and it's like my first introduction to, other than like student council, organizational structure. Because they oh, have to have an organizational structure to operate. So even then, you were watching an organization. Oh, yeah. I was like secretary, the then treasurer, <laughs> and then I became president. You know, I'm like, okay, I got how to get this done, you know? Yeah, back then. So given your own um, growth curve, into your education and getting ready to launch into the workplace, which you, you started at GM, right? Yes, I actually did because a great professor said to me, I know you're paying for this yourself. And, you know, he said, I know of a program, General Motors wants to hire two women or two two underrepresented people from the top universities. You should apply. I'm like, oh, I could never get that. No, no, you should apply. And I am, to this day, Mary Barra is my good friend, and I am extremely thankful to them. They paid my whole way at Northwestern for two years. I'd have ended with $200,000 of loans yeah, had it, it not been, been for them. To yeah. many, so I'm empathetic to the te- people out there today with those kind of loans, which will lead me to later in life where I'm like, wait, wait, wait. This isn't the only path forward for a lot of people, right? But that'll come back. Yeah. So also with this, you had internships. There was kind of an apprenticeship. Yeah. How did this then, because it not only clearly launched your career, but how did it shape your framing of what a talent strategy should be for a company like IBM? Yeah, this this is a very important point to this day, I believe. So I do... Honestly, Laura, I try to write the book with timeless lessons. I'm very cognizant. I was a different generation. And this book is meant for not just women, men, and across all ages. And that idea of apprenticeships, you know, today in tech, you will have an obsolete skill in three to five years. Right. So our sort of idea of once and done learning is really a a thing of the past already. And I would learn many times over this value of apprenticeships. Like I would apprentice through my career at IBM into areas I had no business being in <laughs> many times. And I would say, hmm, interesting. I've learned a skill that, you know, I ran and built a consulting business up to a $20 billion business and I didn't have an MBA. So, okay, that's interesting. I was all around these MBA people. No offense. I know where I'm at again. <laughs> but I, uh, I saw that. So, A, I would learn this value of apprenticeships. B, I would learn the value of experiential learning, which mm-hmm. I think in this moment, in this world, is super important. That you have to experience and do things, not just read about them. And so much of how I would shape IBM would be making people have immersive learning. Because when I would become CEO, we would find that 
the majority of people did not have the skills for the future. They had it for the past, not the not future. Not the future. And I would have to role model. I would teach the first Friday of every month compulsory education for four years. And that is a lot of classes to teach. And that's a lot of CEO time. That's It is, but it was like, wait, every one of us, continuous learning. I mean, that's another theme of the book. Like, I really feel strongly for all of us about this continuous learning. I feel strongly about this listen with an intent to learn that these were like there was nothing else special about me other than that willingness. And I, that's why I feel like it can be for everybody that reads there's something, I hope, a habit that helps. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Sarrow, and I am talking with the amazing Ginny Rometty. Oh, thank you so much for that, <laughs> as written by my mom. Yeah. So, Ginny, with um, this commitment to lifelong learning in all of its different dimensions, I was curious, you clearly stayed up to date on your technology education for a long time. How far into your leadership roles did you continue it? And did you ever switch to coaching, um, leadership training, more formal education in the softer skills? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, of course I did. But Early on, I was once taught uh, one of the people I were again. I, my view, maybe we'll talk about mentors. My view is everybody's your mentor. Okay, I have very different views on this than some people. If you are will, I've always found, if I brought value to people, or if I was willing to listen, they would be my mentor and they would be a supporter. And you kind of amass a huge network of that through your time. And I was taught early on, when someone asks for help, you give it to them, and you can't imagine decades that will pay off to you. And this idea. You know, as you say, like continuous learning, when did you ever move over? I, I, to this day, keep up on my technical, right? So even as I was CEO, I made the leadership team, learned to, you know, program on the cloud, write AI applications, you know, didn't matter. And what I was taught early on was you be ready to dance when your team cannot was the lesson. And it doesn't mean you should, you know, get out of my way, let me do your job, right? It was that you had a visceral understanding of what that work is and never preside. I mean, many people will talk about that issue of management Mm -hmm. and that your job isn't to, this is a really valuable lesson. I once felt, God, I'm getting really good at managing process. That is a really bad thing because I felt like, is that a market, marketable skill? Is that something worth something in the external market? Not really. Think of how many people like just know how to get something done in their company. Mm -hmm. Okay, necessary but not sufficient, right? And that would leave this big mark on me and like, wait, always be sure, back to my mom, independence. Right. You have built a skill that means something externally that people will pay for, not internally. So one of the things that struck me as I was learning about your career path was, there was both um, serendipity and there was purposeful movement. How did you um, – and there are marvelous parts of the story where you talk about how you seized a particular moment. But how did you ratchet up your ambition yeah. for yourself so that you could be strategic yeah, about where you wanted very, to go? that's a very, very good question because I didn't start there. Um, I started maybe like a lot of people. I always felt like, oh. I can't do that. I can't do that. I would focus on everything I did not know how to do. And in the very beginning, I would really mull over every new assignment someone asked me to do. And I'd be like, oh, here's five reasons I may not succeed at this. <laughs> and, you know, when I moved from being an engineer into consulting, I thought, well, what am I doing here with all of these MBAs? That had, we were going to start a consulting business. Now in IBM, it's a third of the company today. Um, and I would end up growing a lot of it. But at the time, I thought, what on earth? 
it to make this pivot. And it was at that time, my husband says to me, after I'm like sleepless nights, he's like, well, it seems to me you have a lot of the skills they're talking about, problem solving, et cetera. I take that job. And you say, how does this ratchet up? And this is to me like a really golden, I hope, lesson for people in the book. I say, time would go on. And I would then get faced with a very large promotion that you read about. And my boss says to me, I want you to take my job. I'm moving on. I'd only done a third of his job at that point. I'm like, whoa, two more years, please. Nope, nope. I said, I don't think I'm ready. Two more years. He says, Jenny, go to the interview. Go to the interview. Of course, I get offered the job. I say to the person, I'd like to go home and ask my husband and talk to him about it. He looks at me and he says, "Uh, okay. I go home and... uh, I may have called him. I don't think I was in town. I called Mark, and he says to me, he lets me go on and on. I'm a type A. He's a Z. (laughs) And uh, I go on and on. And he says to me, Jenny, do you think a man would have answered the question that way? And it wasn't just gender. What he was saying to me was, he goes, I know all these other people they're looking at. And he said, you know, you're better. And why do you do this to yourself every time? And they all would say they could do these things, or they'll think of the five they can do. And there's many studies, Laura, you know this, over yeah. women, that they pick the, what they can't do. I'm not stereotyping. There are studies. No, and this the men is true. They it's can a do, pattern, right? and we see it all the time. All and also that women won't put themselves forward unless they possess 100% of the requirements okay. or skills, so, and men will do it with 60%. And this is exactly, and I will come back and change our policies because of this particular learning. And so, but what it crystallized for me, my, my it's almost what the book got called, growth and comfort will never coexist. And it, meaning, if you shut your eyes, if you're listening to us, I'm not sleeping, that um, when did you learn the most? If I asked you when did you learn the most, what would you say to me? Um, I le- you know what? I hadn't thought about it at the beginning of every job. when And some jobs where I would go home and cry every night. Yeah. It's the learning curve that would be so hard and stressful. Yeah. So it's, it's true. I mean, it's, like, it's not even a hard. I could put all my money on it to yeah. that answer. and. The difference is now how you d- decide to interpret those situations. So I started to interpret them over time. You said, how do you ratchet it? Yeah. I'd start to say, whoa, I know this is painful at the moment. Like you said, I go home and cry. But I actually know in time, picture myself a year out, wow, I'm going to be so much better. This, and it, So it never, it got to the point that no matter how bad a situation was, I was just talking to someone last weekend, it was a very difficult career situation. I said, I'm telling you. In a year, you will be so happy of how much better your skills are going to be in these areas. And that would start to make me then take on more and more risk. And it would even say to me, if I wasn't nervous, I'd say, oh, this is not good. This means I, I got to move on because I'm not learning anything now. I oh, would start wow. to associate nervousness with learning. And that's for me, was like a really important lesson to learn. That's so interesting. So actually, just at the point where you're like, okay, I'm not going home and crying anymore. I am comfortable. I got this. That's actually a moment you should yep. start thinking about the next it thing. It is. It is. I 100% agree on that. So another area that you really purposely worked on developing your skills, essential for a CEO, is actually communication. And I love the part where you talked about you had a little black book. Tell us what you were doing with it and observing and how you then put it to work. Yeah. For the lawyers listening, I, of course, ripped up every page after (laughs) I wrote it. Um, But this is something I did not start out being a great communicator. And there are people that will say I'm like a world-class communicator now. So I I was like, oh, you're horrible. You're facing your charts and you're reading things. You're not interesting. You know that old saying, if you don't love it, your audience won't love it. And there was another famous saying. It was Maya Angelou that says, they will not remember what you said, but they will remember how you make them feel. And it is a thousand percent true. Mm-hmm. So what I would do after I realized that, you know, communicating is not about you. It's about the other person. Do they 
remember or learn anything. So it's not about me telling you how much I know. I got to be really careful of that. It's just about what do you need to know, and if I've you know done it in a way you could understand it. So I would in in presentations of people who I thought were world class. Yes, I was taking notes, um, but I would be diagramming their talks, and I would die. Oh, that's try to, so interesting. I was, I was like trying to figure out the engineer in me. Is there a pattern here? Is there a pattern? And I did find a pattern to the people I loved, and a, a, a really grabbing introduction to what they were trying to communicate. Usually only three points, and there's like there's like histories of well about why three is a good number, right? And what you can remember, and stories, 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 and that's it. I mean, the old. Well, I keep saying it's Abraham Lincoln, but I'm wrong. If I'd have written you a shorter letter, if I had more time, who was that? It's so funny. I've heard Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln. I think it goes back to Pascal. Does it really? Okay, yes. I was thinking maybe you were right on Ben Franklin. It is so. So it is so much harder to do. Infinitely. And it would lead me down a path that I would never use an overhead again. I would never use a slide. It, to me, then, the sign of respect to who I was was that I had prepared. And I would try to do it in a way they could actually remember something about this. And then over the years, it would lead to, you know, before I saw a client, I would have all these notes about, they'd be like, hey, what else is on your list? You know, because they got something out of it. And um, this idea that you can learn that communication is a science. It is not just an art. And I think many people feel, oh, I could never be a good communicator, and I'm nervous, and I'm this, and I can't. Is, is, is I, I hope I instill in people reading this, no, no, no. It's essential, by the way, if mm -hmm. you're going to move up very far that you be able to communicate, but that it is an absolute learned skill. I had to learn it because I started yes. bad and did good. <laughs> yeah. So in this, I'm hearing um, the engineer in you really thinks about process, sees process, uses process. The designer in me feels the same way. So I was particularly taken um, with your story about how you brought design thinking to IBM. Yeah, yeah. So how, what was that about? Okay, just in a quick nutshell, one of the many things I had to change when I became CEO was it wasn't just the product portfolio. It was clear all the startups, they work fast, they're simple, they're easy. Tim Cook would become my good friend and we would form a partnership, but, you know, You'd pick up your iPhone, you don't read an instruction book, boom, you hit a button. And our products were made for enterprises and are very complex, like engineers building from the inside outward. Right. So they are so happy to reveal all their complexity to you. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is a different world now. And it dawned on us, and this is, again, and it's kind of why I end the book like I do when I, I, I handwrite a letter to, to the reader, and I say, do remember that how you do your work could matter more than what you do in your life. And to me, the how, when people say, well, how did IBM, what did we do to re reinvent it? People always want to talk about the what, the products, da da right. da da To me, the harder thing was changing how people did their work. And to your point on design, I knew we had to make our products consumable, and they had to have that same ease of use. And for speed, you had to do design with agile, small teams, iterative. That kind of team starts with a little product, gets it right, then makes it a little bigger, more simple, e extremely different than make a mess fast, okay? Right, and you're not over-investing early on, Never. and you're learning from your mistakes. And you always take that view of the end user first and come inward. That's what you learned in design school, right? right. And IBM actually had a history of design with aims and all sorts of things oh, yeah. I found Legendary. in our history. Legendary. You would know in design. So it would take us on a path of building out design for not only 10 and 20,000, you know, 100,000 people of trying. It was so symbolic of 
moving from inside out to outside mm-hmm. in, it's also, simplifying, consumable, and speed. And also bringing empathy to the situation. A huge word I should have used, you use better, because you're a design <laughs> expert. Yes, yes. But it's also, I'm teed up having read the book because you're bringing empathy to so much that you do. It seems like a big, there's so many things, Jenny, that I could talk to you about and I want to ask you about, but I don't want to um, waste a moment. I want to get to skills first. Um, why this is the thing that you're doing post-IBM yeah. and why it's so important. Yeah, so good. If I could please share that with, thank you for giving me that chance with the audience here because I think it, I would be so bold as to say, I think democracy hinges on this concept. So let me back up. Is that, um, back to my mom, access and aptitude, two mm-hmm. different things. Time would go on, I'd become CEO. Um, 2012, I'm hiring cyber people, can't find any. Unemployment's almost 10%. It dawns, hey, I serendipity, as you say, walk in a meeting and corporate social responsibility team is telling me about one school in Brooklyn, a high school with a community college. We've given them some help on curriculum, given the kids internships, and they get an associate degree at the same time, and we hired them for cyber, and they're doing a fantastic job. Oh, by the way, 95% are Hispanic and black. I say to myself, hmm, this is kind of interesting. I get into a year later, we're measuring what's happening. Wow outstanding people. Never had the access. Never. But boy, did they have aptitude. And I start to say, I think we've stumbled upon a new workforce here. Like, you know, people say they can't find a diverse workforce. Baloney. And IBM was uh, next year. How many have we hired? Oh, you know, small number. I'm like, why? Well, 95% of our jobs require a PhD or a university degree. I was like, well, they're doing those jobs over there like super good already. And we started to look and analyze how many jobs really require that to get started? Right. And I would tell you, I'm going to generalize, because um, now I work with 100 big companies on this, that 50% of your jobs that require a four-year degree to get started are over-credentialed. They do not. And my strong belief is that, please, I'm not against a college degree. I'm vice chairman at Northwestern. <laughs> um, but where you start should not determine where you end. These are different on-ramps for people. Because my experience has been, by the way, 75% of my workforce went on, they went on and got their degrees. We've had our first PhD. I mean, I've been at this over a decade now. So I want to unpack it a little bit to make sure I'm understanding it and also the listeners. So the... One of the fundamental threads in here is about um, there are these barriers within our society that are, that false. are systemic and they're false. That it's so it does take privilege in many cases to get to a four year degree program, pay for it and succeed and get through it because those are each different benchmarks. Yep. And so there's a huge swath of talent yep. that is not being leveraged by the workforce. And that ta- ta- that talent, each and every one, is a human being who also needs to find work and deserves to find work. Yeah, you, you, you've even said better than I, because what I think people didn't understand, and I write in the book, I didn't. 65% of Americans do not have a college degree, and 80% of black Americans do not. I don't know why people think they, they feel they should have a better future. I did work with, no offense, MIT on the future of work, and when... When people say they feel left out, when you look at the math, they have been. So yeah, you wonder clearly. why people riot, protest, do things, don't see a better future for their children. This is why. They can't get a job to sustain a family. And so I became a real convert that, you know, democracy hinges on people believing this system 
provides a better future for them. And right now, that is not true for the majority. And so my view on this, as you said, so here's a systemic barrier that says, it doesn't mean it shouldn't still be your dream and it can't still happen, right? right? So I'm not trying to say a two-class system, those that have a college and those that don't. But what we found is mm -mm, some people for, like if I waited for everyone, it's going to take 100 years. On the other hand, if I can get you started now, then you make more money. I mean, we could change so many simple things in the whole system in education. I'm not trying to revamp everything. This is very small tweaks will allow a lot of people to get the skills. And now I remind you that with tech, the jobs are changing so fast. So this is going to apply to a lot of mid-career people that they're going to find themselves going, whoa, the job I used to be able to get and get paid this, I can't anymore. It's going the other direction. Now what do I do? So this is also why it's so important that organizations are really being expansive and creative in how they think about their own talent strategy, starting with the recruitment of talent. Yeah, it's it's very much, I found one of the biggest roadblocks was bias. It You don't know how deep, and it is deep in every mm-hmm. company. And I would have to prove to our workforce that these people were not dumbing down. I was accused of dumbing down the workforce, and that I wasn't, and that, okay, first year, not quite as productive, but then they were more loyal, more retentive, took more education than my college graduates. Isn't that interesting? So They're hungry. thirstier and hungrier. Yes. And just wonderful. And so to your point, I started to say, well, wait a second, this is actually a talent strategy for everyone. Like, wouldn't you, and skills first, hire me for my skills, not just my degree is what that means. And wouldn't you like to be paid for that? Appraised, promoted, um, and then that applied. I would learn it through the other comment I made that it applied to my entire workforce. So I converge those. But like if you're HR, it means, okay, you better really focus on building talent, not buying talent out in the and marketplace. And also, like I had, it, it was a, a moment of awareness for me. I've written dozens of job descriptions, dozens and dozens and dozens. Oh, interesting. And how many times had I put in, well, of course I have to have an undergraduate degree, but did anybody ever ask me why? Listen, it took, took us five years. I had a fantastic CHRO with me who really believed it. and Because, I mean, I personally didn't go rewrite all this. <laughs> the whole team did. And she said, let's go through every job description and convert it to skills. Oh, was that hard work? Because they're like, it's okay, huge they go to the job owner and they're like, can you write the skill down? They're like, whoa, let's think about that. It, very hard to do. But once you did, you ended up hiring better across the board because people, it was clear what they needed to succeed at it. And as you would guess... As well, what we would learn is it wasn't so much the hard skills. It's where you started our interview. It would also be a lot of, I I hate the word, people tell me they don't like the word soft skills. So think of it more as like problem solving and communication and teamwork because, you know, I could teach you the rest of those other things pretty easily in a lot of businesses. And that, but the others are, are more difficult if you don't start learning them all along the way. And I think that'll be true now with things like chat GPT as it enters the AI world. I can look at a positive side of that and say, you know what, it's going to bring to the forefront critical thinking because now you can't be rewarded for memorizing and turning it into a paragraph. Now this thing will give it to you. And now you better ask the questions about is this real? Is it fake? And is that where then um, it becomes a continuum from skills-based hiring, apprenticeships, internships, and then into more formal education, yes. higher education, yes. to build those critical thinking skills and then advance yep. through the yep. organization. I agree 100%. In and out of these, kind, you'll kind of weave yourself in and out, which is why things like our higher education, how we, the money we spend on these topics, we spend $180 billion a year as a country. That's staggering. And, but things like you can't use 
Pell Grants is right. what they're called. If you want to just take a course to be, let's say, a medical technician in California, it's not you know it's not enough credits that right. would be considered like a full time student. I'm generalizing, but simple tweaks like this, like I work policy s- tweaks, policy tweaks would make a. I'm not looking to overhaul the place. You know, this is what I work on now. I worked seven years to get some passage of a law called the Perkins Act. All it said was, if you're a community college, which is a completely we, we we make so much better use of our community college network. If you are, your funding should be dependent on teaching skills that are in demand in the market. Right. That seems that is not like a really novel thought to you and I. No, okay? but it's part of an. Equ- but uh, what a difference! It's kind of like the it's the contract with taxpayers too. Yeah. It's that these funded educational systems have a purpose in our economy and our society, and it's to help people get good jobs. That's right. That's how I feel, and and, and I know a lot of people do. And so, whether you're Delta Airlines, Cleveland Clinic, General Motors, J.P. Morgan, <laughs> there's a lot of big companies working on this now, making great headway on this topic. So I want to come back to something personal. We're running out of time. Okay, we're done. But Jenny, you are, you know. A serious the, the poster child for the lifelong learner. Yeah. So I have to presume you're still learning things. What are you working on now? Well, skills first is what I am working on now. So the other thing I learned was how hard it was to write a book. Okay. <laughs> I will never. I said to everyone who was there, oh, I can't wait to work with you again. I'm like, no, there will be no again. Because uh, it was the second to running IBM, the second hardest thing I ever did was write a book. So I, it will be worth it if it helps some people. Then, then that was a two years well spent. Well, Jenny, I know it's already helped me, and I'm sure it's helping our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us, and what a pleasure to have you uh, here in person. You do your homework, girl. That's a good example. <laughs> Preparation is the highest form of compliment you can oh, give someone. Thank you. So thank I am you. Quite honored. And for those of you listening, if you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks to my team as always, Kara Pogue, Teresa Kosadek, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, people, and believe in your own power. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.